he's here. Yay, recording. Maggie and Abby, I'm so happy to welcome you to the Beautiful Voyager podcast. As I was saying to you right before I hit record, your book, The Anxiety Sisters, might as well have been my book. I feel like I am such an anxiety sister. I am so bought in on everything, how you present everything, how you think about anxiety, just very resonant for me. So I would love to hear a little bit about how you got into this world and how you started working on this together. We were just wondering today how we got into this world. And <laughs> um, no, seriously, we met in college and became very dear friends. I think we recognized each other as struggling with anxiety, even though we did not have the words for what that thing was, you know, but we'd have all these long Me too. Calls, Me too. You know. <laughs> we didn't yeah. know what it, that thing was, but we recognized the struggle and stayed very close after college when we became each other's touchstone, really, because both of us at different times over the next 20 years really struggled with anxiety. We often call this like the first decade or second decade out of college. I often call the decade of the is. And it was like, we felt so bad that we went around to all these is to try to get help. So it's like the therapist, the psychiatrist. Oh my God, relatable, relatable. The so gastroenterologist. Yeah. Hypnotist. <laughs> past life regressionist. Whoever we thought offered a glimmer of hope and wanted to take our money. Oh, no, some of them were actually very helpful. I have to say, some of them were very helpful. Some of them were not. I, but, me too. Uh, I mean, same, same journey. I remember at one point I went to, and if this worked for you, again, yeah. I'm supportive of whatever works for anyone, but I went to someone who was an allergist where you're supposed to hold your hand up and they, I, I don't know. It never, oh, I, it well, never I, led I, me I, to a path that made me feel better. <laughs> You know, I had my acid alkaline and my tongue tested and nothing is wrong with any of that. It was more that we were both grasping at straws because we really didn't always know what was going on. And we could not believe when people told us this could be anxiety. Let's face it, anxiety makes you desperate. It brings you to your knees. Well, Anne, did you ever have the experience, just because I feel like you're both kindred souls, that you were just searching, always like competent and searching, searching, searching. Like I can find an answer. I can find an answer. I'm just going to keep looking. I can find an answer. Yes. No one ever suggested to me that it was anxiety, by the way. So I, you were a step ahead, even if people were mentioning that. It took us a lot to get to that point. I don't want to say people said it was anxiety and then that was off because the whole thing was both of us had such physical, like most people with anxiety, it felt so physical you know, your stomach or your heart, it feels like allergies. It feels like all those things. So it took a long time for people to start to say, or a therapist to start to say, Hey, this may be anxiety. And then for us to believe them. I mean, this, I cannot underscore enough how, how resonant this is, how this is my experience. I was 40 when I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I spent a lifetime of migraines tingling limbs, nausea. How many times did I say, I feel nauseated? No, I'm not pregnant. I feel like I spent my entire twenties being like, I'm nauseated. I'm nauseated. And you know, lightheadedness, fainting, like all these things. Right. But for me, no one ever, I went to five therapists, no one ever spotted it. So I just find this very interesting that we had this very similar path 
of not knowing. <laughs> Why did we not know? Well, we, you know, because I think even more now than when Abby and I at least were struggling, I think there's a little more discussion now and less stigma. But I think back then there was even less discussion. But even now, I think that people say, oh, so-and-so has anxiety or this could be it. But they don't really talk about what that experience is because it's such a physical experience, right? So it's not like you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Those are like the good days. You know, you wake up and you're feeling nauseous or whatever your symptoms are. And so people don't know. And certainly the medical professionals often don't know. So when did you two connect with each other and say, okay, this is what it is? Like what brought it to that stage where you understood that together? We had a lot of moments of clarity (laughs) (laughs) throughout the 20 years that we, you know, heaved and hyperventilated through our days. We really sort of started to figure it out maybe right around like the 2000s. (laughs) So we had already known each other for almost 20 years. I think I figured it out. I was a little up ahead of Abby in terms of like my symptoms getting really bad, my panic attacks and phobias really getting to the point where I wasn't functioning. That happened later for her. So I, after running around and telling her everything and, you know, I started to realize that I probably had anxiety, but yes. Well, only, only from the standpoint that you had been to every other doctor. Exactly. And they couldn't find anything else. I mean, it was really, I remember you crying to me on the phone saying, I mean, is there ever a case where it's stomach cancer, but they can't see it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was, I had lost so much weight and couldn't eat and was so nauseous, but I sort of came to the point where my therapist said like, this is anxiety. And then I went to a psychiatrist who said, this is anxiety. And then when Abby started going through her stuff and started going to like the heart doctors and the emergency room. I said to her a little bit earlier on, you know, abs, this is anxiety. This is anxiety. And she's like, no way, no way. And can you describe for me where you were in your lives? Like, where were you located? Who were you living with? Like, can you just place me there at that time? When my anxiety and phobias became really severe, it was six months after my father died after a very long illness. That's when the severity really became to the point where- She was 26. She was 26 at the time. Yeah, I was was in my 20s and I was really sort of starting not to function at all. But looking back on it, I had a long history of anxiety. I have, you know, I was an anxiety kid (laughs) looking back on it. But when it became- that place where it was like the panic attacks and the phobias were so intense. It was six months after my dad died and I was living with the person who became my husband, you know, shortly after this. And where were you? Where where were you? In New York city. New York city. Okay. Yes. See, I was living in New York city and the phobias just kept getting bigger and bigger. So, you know, I was phobic about the subway, which of course I had to take every day. I was phobic about trains. I was phobic about buses. Elevators. Elevators. And I lived on the 16th floor. So Virtually everything in your daily life. My world shrunk to the point where it was very difficult to leave home. And Abby, were you also in New York? 
No, I was not. It's so funny because Mags and I met in Pennsylvania when we went to school in Philadelphia. And then we sort of never lived in the same city again <laughs> after that. We still live. She's in um, Columbus, Ohio, and I'm in New Jersey. And so when we get together to work, we literally drive to this place in Pennsylvania that's four hours for each of us. But you were in Florida when you started getting really bad, right? Well, the thing is that I look back and I also was an anxiety kid. I didn't really seek a lot of help for my anxiety until I started having panic attacks. Because for me, the panic attacks felt like heart attacks. And so I thought I was dying. So I felt like I had no choice. I had to address this issue because, you know, I felt like I didn't have much time left. But what's interesting is that my primary diagnosis is obsessive compulsive disorder. And that diagnosis did not come till I was 46 years old. Wow. See, I mean, I heard with OCD that the average is 10 years. I can remember compulsions I was having and obsessions when I was five years old. But people just don't know how to recognize it. And of course, if you're a kid, you don't know how to talk about it. And a lot of it is internal and thoughts. And that's hard to identify. Obsessive thinking is, is a nasty bugger. I was really thrown by intrusive thoughts and, you know, and I wouldn't talk about it very much to anyone other than Mags. It's so hard for me to think about an exact timeline for my anxiety because it was always there for me. I think it was probably always there for Mags too in other ways, but yes, you know, we just had this roller coaster. So what about anxiety sisters? Tell me about like, when did that happen? That's that story I can tell in a linear fashion. (laughs) (laughs) That happened on a bus. It happened on a bus going from New Jersey to New York. It was 2010, and we, at this point, we were much more in control. We know this because Maggie was on public transportation. She had managed things better so that her world was starting to grow again. And we're on this bus, and we're talking really loudly about medication for anxiety and side effects, which is probably something people talk quietly about, but we're the anxiety sisters. So everyone on the bus all of a sudden started like leaning in, and the woman in the seat in front of us said, hey, I'm on that same medication. What do you do about that side effect? And literally within 20 minutes, almost all the women on the bus were part of the conversation. And when we got off the bus, I said to Mags, I said, can you believe how eager and willing these women were to talk to perfect strangers about really intimate things like sexual side effects and medication? And, you know, and she said, yeah, I believe it because anxiety makes you feel so alone. People are just desperate for community around this. And then she just sort of announced to Ninth Avenue, we're anxiety sisters. And it stuck. What happened after that? So your anxiety sisters, you're the ones that are going to talk out loud. Like what happened? Okay, it's the two of us now. And we need to go out there and spread the word that it's okay to have anxiety, that anxious is human and that you can manage it. You can get your life back because we did. And we know how now (laughs) we can save you a little time. It took us 20 years, but, you know, we figured out some things that maybe can help people do it a little quicker. So we said, we're going to create a community. And we did. We started out with the two of us, and now we have over 200,000. That's amazing. That's amazing. Can I tell you, as a community builder myself, working on Beautiful Voyager for six years, seven years, it's a very slow and steady process. I'm really impressed. That is a big number. Yeah, it takes time. It took a long time. Yeah, I bet. How do people find you? Like, How did this community grow? We really have been on social media. I mean, we have a website. And in the beginning on our website, we had forums because we knew people wanted to chat with each other and this and that. And so we had that for a bit. But then we noticed that over time, people were just moving to Facebook, to our Facebook page with their conversation. It was just happening naturally. 
yeah, they would say, meet you on Facebook. And so we were like, well, do they not want these forums? And so we tried an experiment. We took the forums down and nobody complained. <laughs> so, and now, you know, we really keep the conversation going on Facebook. That's Mag's full-time job, really, because the community is so large and we do so much on Facebook that it requires, you know, 24-7 kind of maintenance. We also have Instagram and a podcast. Well, I will um, add the links to all of these things as yeah, well for people to be able to book. find, for sure. So the book seems like it's a big step of like getting everything into one place. Is that right? I imagine this is like many years of experience yes. represented here. <laughs> this started a little bit when we both had anxiety or a lot, but then it really kind of took shape as we became the Anxiety Sisters, we just started interviewing as many people as we could about their experience with anxiety, like just talking to them. And so we have this really rich kind of treasure trove of stories from people, you know, so we definitely put a lot of that in our book, but we have many, many more, but we put a lot of that in our book. And then, you know, I became a social worker And Abby became a professor of communication. And the two of us would talk to experts or attend conferences. And so we'd learn even more. So it was always this process of growing this community and learning more. And there came a point where we realized we had a lot of information. And so, you know, the book was a very natural next step, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I really love, and this all makes sense to me now of why I felt so much resonance, is that you came at it from a very practical, hands-on approach. Like you're a social worker, you're a communications person, you're articulating, you're trying to articulate what the problem is, you're trying to articulate what's happening. And one of the things that I've found frustrating in the past is that a lot of Not to say that there aren't great books out there by psychiatrists and psychologists, like there are, but like a lot of it is lacking the human connection that comes from the vulnerability of revealing what's actually happening. Like there's something about saying them, like they do this, they do this. And I just love when it's, this is what we're learning because we are passionate about this topic. We are constantly learning about this topic and it's us. It's us. There's no they in our book. It's us. Half the paragraphs in the book start with we anxiety sisters. Yes, exactly. And everything that we talk about in the book, we've been through. Yeah. (laughs) We have walked the walk. I think we felt the same way you did. You really are one of us because we felt the same way. There was an incident where when we were both really dealing with anxiety, you know, we were together. We always go to bookstores together. That's something we've always liked to do. And so Abby said, uh, let's go into Barnes and Noble and let's go look at the anxiety books together, which, you know, we had done separately, but let's go see what they have now. And we went in and said to the sales lady, we, you know, where's the anxiety section? She goes, oh, that's my section. I need that section. <laughs> you know, so, and then she brought- People always say that, don't they? Every time they hear what you're working on, who you are, they're like, oh, that's for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when we got there, we started looking through books and Abby said like, you know, you're going to have to excuse me for a minute. I got to go outside. Like the books were making her so- They're so stressful. Thank you. Thank you. They're so stressful because they are so detached from, and this is what's really was important to me in working on my book was what does it make you feel? Does it make you feel embraced, accepted, curious, inspired? Those were the things I wanted to feel. And yours makes me feel understood. Like 
comforted. Like when you look at what had been there to date, it was stigmatized really. Like so much of what I've seen just had the stigma of they are experiencing this. (laughs) They are doing this. (laughs) And also I think some of what made me panicky in that bookstore was that a lot of the books we were thumbing through and they're written by really bright people, some of whom we've interviewed on our podcast. I mean, you know, we, we really do have a lot of respect for these clinicians, but they were very prescriptive, which we get because being in the medical field, that's part of your job is to prescribe. So that's what they're really good at. But I know for me and Mags, we're reading all these prescriptions about what we needed to be doing, what we should be doing. And we kept looking at each other like... So stressful. I mean, even just hearing the word should is just... <laughs> When really the reality is you describe it and I describe it the same way is experiments. You know, it's just trying this, trying this. Can you tell me about your spin kit, by the way? Sure. So our spin kit, our idea of a spin kit is that we want people to be prepared. We believe in prepping for panic, I guess we would say. So we want people to be prepared for their anxiety. And so we always suggest having a little kit with you, like a little bag or whatever you want to keep it in. It has some things to distract you, some things to soothe you, soothe your senses, and some things to deal with any kind of anxiety symptoms. And we call that a spin kit. And Abby always says it's like much like the way you would carry an EpiPen. If you had an allergy, you carry a spin kit if you're an anxiety sister. And so like my spin kit, I have this right here. I have this little lavender oil with me right now. You know, I might have lavender essential oil, a little crochet project with me, maybe some stomach medicine. What's in your spin kit, Abby? It's uh, That's our big commercial. We want to be like Jennifer Garner. What's in your spin kit? Yeah. <laughs> We're hoping to land a sponsor. The things in my spin kit would make Maggie anxious. Like I have pictures of my cats in my spin kit because my cats are really soothing and comforting to me. But Mags is a little bit afraid of my cat. So (laughs) isn't that amazing? But obviously everyone's spin kit is going to have to be different. (laughs) People are always saying to us, where can we buy a spin kit? We're like, well, you know, we can't really sell you one because you need it to be tailored to your own needs. We have had spin kit parties. Like we had a retreat a few years ago, an Anxiety Sisters retreat in Vermont. That was so much fun. I feel like you should be sponsored by like a million different things, right? Are you sponsored oh, okay. by so many things? Like Box Rescue Remedy should sponsor us. I <laughs> Let's send that out into the universe. But I just feel like the spin kit is a great idea and people are willing to pay to try to take care of some of these things for sure. Not that you need to. I mean, there are no, other, no. certainly other ways. We want people to have things like, I know one of the things that always really helped ground me when I was sort of floating with panic attacks was having like a strong flavor with me, like a peppermint or lemon drop, something pop in my mouth. And it was like sort of very strong flavor and sort of would ground me or to have like a cooling towel with me, you know, because I would get very hot as part of my panic. So like the panic, that's the thing is you can't stop the panic, but you can, the spin kit will help you ride it out. I love that. I love that. I feel the same way. It's you're reminding me now that I used to have fresh coffee beans in a little container jobs ago, numerous jobs ago. And periodically I just like move them around so they smelled. And it just literally was just trying to create that 
in my daily life. It's, you know, yeah. these little things you're already doing and you just sort of you modify it. I had a, I had my own spin kit for sure. Yeah. Tell me about Anxiety Brothers. Are they part of the picture? Like what's your relationship with yeah, we, brothers? We, we call ourselves the Anxiety Sisters because our experience together has been one of sisterhood. But we always tell people that the Anxiety Sisterhood is for any gender, any type of anxiety. There's no qualification, you know? So actually, at last count, about 30% of our members identify as male. But I mean, like I said, we're open to everything. So that's amazing. That's more than I would have thought. That's impressive. It shows the the strength of the community that you're building. For sure. we We said, you know, anxiety community is not that catchy. So Anxiety Sisters has a something to it, and that's our experience, but it's really everybody. Yeah, I mean, I do think when we started this, we thought more about women, like basically our interviews were more with women at the time, particularly. So that's what you'll see in our book that's changed a little in the last few years. But I think that was partly because there was still more stigma for men to talk about it. There still is. It's better than it was, but there's still a lot more stigma for men to reach out and, and sort of talk about their feelings and know what's going on and go to therapy, unfortunately, although I think it's getting better. What's your relationship with Gen Z, the youngsters? They are living such a different experience than we did oh, we love when them. it comes to this stuff. So do you have a lot of people who are young in your group? What's that like? They're our favorites. Yeah, we love them. They know so much, don't they? Oh I mean, it's unbelievable. Can you imagine if we had known this when we were no. married? No. And they, they also have, so they have a lot of pressures that we never had. It's a so, great point. Yeah. They have a lot of pressures we didn't have, the social media, I think. Abby and I always talk about how we wouldn't have handled that well. There's so many other world pressures right now that we didn't have. But I have to say that both of us really like working with young people in general. Like I've worked with college age people as a social worker and Abby's done that as a professor. So we sort of love that age group. And we also love the fact that, you know, they're coming into the workplace and talking about what they need, like in terms of mental health, you know, that maybe some people in our generation were starting who had different physical disabilities were starting to say like, oh, I need something wheelchair accessible, or I need you know, this special stuff so I can hear. But I mean, this generation comes in and they are very frank, I think, about a lot of their struggles. And that's amazing. That's amazing. It is. It is amazing to watch. It is amazing to see how times have changed so much. Can we do a quick medication check? Like what kind of medication? I'm Lexapro. Um, I actually did go on Wellbutrin as well, just to see if it could like get the edges off some of the Lexapro side effects. That's a good reason for Wellbutrin, although it sometimes makes people more anxious too. But it is a good reason for Wellbutrin. I take Zoloft. Okay. Abby's on Prozac, right, Abs? Long time. And yeah. so did you ever hear that Sarah Silverman went off her Zoloft and it was like she had been on it for so long? I, changing medication is not to be done lightly. No, we write about that. Yeah. If we could just say one thing, please do not abruptly stop any of the medications we've mentioned or anything like them, any SSRI, Prozac, Zoloft, or Lexapro, you cannot just go off it. Right. Absolutely. There's a lot of websites and other places that really people who talk about going off medication and how most doctors even go too fast 
in terms of going off medication. It has to be done unbelievably slowly. I mean, I have one of those little cutters. Yes. And it's like sliver, sliver, like this sliver is a little bigger, like of going on to it and changing. I mean, it's like that too. Yeah. Yeah, you need all of that. There's a lot of good like sort of crowdsource guidance out there. You have to make sure people know what they're talking about. Yeah. So it's not so easy, but it's a very, very slow process. Yeah. What yeah. is your dream for your book and the community? You're in such an unusual stage where it's been around, it's mature as a community. Like what would you love to see? I think we both fantasize about having a foundation. We're not really at a place where we're ready for it yet, but we would love to be involved in the policy conversation and honestly being able to get help to the people who can't afford it. I mean, I asked this question because one of my jobs at Pinterest, I have numerous jobs, but one of them is working in philanthropy. And we specifically have a philanthropy fund for emotional well-being. So uh, I have been working on that. I've been meeting with lots of nonprofits to talk about that. But if you ever see something that you think, this needs attention, just... Well, what we learned from our community is that, you know, and this is not a surprise to you or anybody else, that, you know, unless you're living in a major city or a major metropolitan area, there's a real lack of quality mental health care and people don't have access. You know, we have so many people from parts of this country who do not have access to a psychiatrist or to someone who has any experience with anxiety medication. So one of the goals of a foundation would be to be able to provide, you know, care and funding for these people because it's important that we all have access to quality mental health care. Mental health care should be preventative. <laughs> like everything else in this country, we wait till it's an emergency and then we try to tackle it and that's too late. We need to be working on this stuff. We need to be giving kids the vocabulary, which now there's some amazing organizations like Active Minds. We are funding Active Minds. I uh, love Active Minds. We, do, we, we sponsor their conference. I love it. We love them. They're yeah. wonderful. love Allison. You know, they do amazing work. I know. And there's more places like them now, which is great. And there's the Jed and there's Trevor and there's a whole bunch of... Really- we also we also fund Jed and Trevor. These relationships are so wonderful. I'm just getting to know, this is my first year working with these people, but I'm just so thrilled to be working hands-on with some of the change makers yeah. in this space. I, it's true. I mean, we, we see that you know, most people are getting medication from their primary care doctor because even if you have insurance, the cost of psychiatry is still prohibitive. And then if you can find someone, like even people with insurance, you know, they're on long waiting lists. So unfortunately, primary care doctors, you know, don't have that training. They have many other things, but they don't always have that training. And so they're sort of, you know, giving out medication and people are not always even getting the full like information about the medication they're getting. They don't know. Am I on an SSRI? Right. SSRI. Right. right. What am I on? What, what can it do? How do I get off this when the time comes? In our book, we actually provide a checklist. You can also find it on our website. It's really important to, if you are considering medication, there's questions you must ask. You need to be an informed consumer. You know, and you can't just trust that, oh, this person is a doctor, therefore, you know, I don't have to worry about doing my my due diligence. It's not true. We all have to really do our own due diligence for our mental and physical health. So, you know, there's really important things to ask your prescriber. How do you feel about therapy via webcam? As a social worker, I think 
it's a great situation when you can be together, right? It's a great situation. But the more that we see the experience of people around this country, the more we're learning that, you know, people live in places where there's not enough mental health practitioners. Yeah, I mean, that's why it seems like this is actually pretty amazing, bringing that opportunity to a lot of people that wouldn't have that otherwise. Exactly. Or if you have agoraphobia, if you have Mm -hmm. trouble leaving your home or you can't drive, there's a way that it opens up the world. And some people feel more comfortable in this menu than, you know, person to person. Especially Um, some of our Gen Zers who really grown up with a computer chip in their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really are so, they have so much facility with this medium. So it's very natural for them. Yeah. Less so so for me and Mags. We've gotten, (laughs) pandemic really got us, you know, acclimated to Zoom. But before the pandemic, we were all about the live workshop, the retreat. You know, we were always face-to-facers. And and that's been a learning curve for us. But certainly the millennials and the Gen Zers, this is something that's much more familiar to them and more comfortable. And we've interviewed a lot of people who've had a fabulous experience with telehealth. That's great. So, I mean, I think like anything else, you need a good practitioner. A good practitioner on Zoom is, is really good. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a good thing. A good I, practitioner is hard to find on or off Zoom. It's true. It is hard to find even in places, you know, we talk to people who live in New York City or live in rural, very rural Kentucky. And let me tell you, sometimes in New York City, too, people tell us, like, I can't find a good psychiatrist. So it's not easy to find, like, the right practitioner either, no matter where you are. Yeah. I mean, just like finding good people, right? I mean, it's just like all of it. It's like... (laughs) Yeah. This is my last question for you all. What are some of your favorite if you have them, representations of anxiety in film or TV. Like I, for example, love Lady Dynamite, which is a show starring Maria Bamford, who is, I just love her so much. But I have a lot of shows that I'm just really impressed at the translation, like the ability to translate some of these feelings. I'm curious if you all have any of those. I was always very impressed with Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos. I know that's so funny, but like the way she talked, I always found her like so impressive. And there's another show just like of a therapist who's doing therapy for different couples. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like real therapy. And she is a fantastic therapist as well. So I definitely have found that the depiction of therapy has grown a lot. Oh, absolutely. You want to hear something funny? It's like how different we are in certain ways. It's like, so when you ask the question, my thought immediately went to what depictions of people with mental health issues? No, me too, by the way. That was my intention when I said it. But but that's interesting. Maggie's our resident therapist and she immediately went to the therapist. Isn't that funny? Like I went right to the anxiety (laughs) sufferer. So it's interesting. What about um, books? Like what are what are some of your favorite books? It doesn't even have to be a depiction, but just like what is one book besides your own? Yours is great, by the way. Strongly oh, recommend. And I'm going to add it to my recommended reading list that I have. But what is a book that you think, you know, this is one book that I think is really and it could be on it. Yeah. We have a probably a bunch between the two of us, but definitely we've both gotten a lot out of Claire Bidwell-Smith who writes... Amazing, yes. Uh, You know what? I have to say that Anxiety is Grief. Grief as Anxiety Uh, book. Anxiety is the missing stage of grief. Thank you. The missing stage of grief. When I first read that, that was the first time I understood panic attacks because... 
I understood the time lapse that the chemicals can course through your body later being triggered by something that was eight hours earlier. That was just, that put me down the path, which I know you write about too, of how are chemicals working? Like what is happening in our body and when do they hit and how does it work? So yeah. I Claire wrote a memoir called inheritance that in my mind is one of the most beautifully written pieces of literature I've ever encountered. And she wrote it as such a young woman. It's to her story of her losing her parents and her sort of her grief and her anxiety. And I thought she just captured all of it in just heartbreakingly breathtaking terms. I mean, I can't even put it in words how good that book is. Abby reads also a lot of neuroscience. So what do you think is like one neuroscience book you'd recommend? I still have to say my favorite neuroscience book I've ever read is called The Teenage Brain. And her name is Frances Jensen. That's a brilliant book. That is a book that I read for a neuroscience course that I took at Harvard, online at Harvard. And it opened my eyes. Like age 25 for the full development of the... Yes. It, it really opened my eyes to the difference between an adult brain and a pre-adult brain. And that was life-changing for me as an anxiety sister, as an anxiety sufferer, and as a parent. That's great advice. I mean, I'm going to relook at that one. I have an 11-year-old, so now's the time to remind yeah. myself about that. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great book. It's, it's good a, to know. It's a good, good book. She's really great. Thank you both so much for taking this time with me today. Oh, I, no. oh, we loved it. We loved it. You're gonna have to come on our podcast. I book. would love to. I feel like I and I knew it. I knew it when I started reading it. I was like, these women know what's happening. These these two know what's going on. And I don't feel that all the time. So I'm thrilled to be adding your book to my recommendations list and so thrilled to get to meet you. Thank you both so much for your time. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Thank you for having us. We'll we'll be hooking up again. (laughs) Definitely.